Welcome to our CEDA interview series on how to tackle challenges within diversity and inclusion with its aim to empower society to hold courageous and powerful dialogues. I am Susanne Schuler, Director of Training at CEDA. What are we experiencing now? There are protests and activists. Certainly, there are city and state forces coming down hard on regular citizens. That is happening. But is there dialogue? Well, not really. Right now, we can say that most of the conversations about racism and difference are not producing anything beyond oppositional and polarized argument. There's much more heat than light. We see that passion is being articulated in a way that is not landing with the other side. The big question and task for us as mediators is, can we turn the current anger into constructive energy and useful action, and how? In this podcast series, you will learn from engineers of genuine social change, peace builders, racial healing experts, and de-radicalization specialists. And what is your role in this? To listen, extract the meaning for yourself and for you to get involved. What is CEDA's commitment? CEDA has its part to play with 30 years experience of small, medium and large-scale conflict. We have worked with communities, businesses and governments to de-escalate and reverse conflict, facilitate dialogue and helped create mutually beneficial pathways to peace and understanding. Thanks for listening. So, welcome um, to the next second interview in our series and welcome Kelly and Francine. And I know it's quite an emotional uh, day today because we are still in the middle of the US election waiting for results. And a lot of, let's say, heated discussions are happening on America's streets. Just when, when I um, switch on several channels and in the US you can see just people outside shouting, ranting. So it, it seems like we are in the middle of a heated debate and I'm not sure if there's much dialogue happening. So it might be actually quite timely to um, not talk about only our topic today, but in terms of dialogue and how to create that when people are really into total polarization. Let me introduce first um, to our audience who you both are, and I'm sure many of you know you already, but it's always nice to hear some something about oneself because you're both very modest and humble people. I'm sure you will never say all these nice things about yourself. Francine is an experienced and respected broadcaster for both radio and television. And over the decades, she has reported for and presented many programs, including the Money Program and Newsnight, as well as one-off documentaries and series on politics, current affairs, and the arts. She's also a mediator, a published author of both novels and nonfiction. She's an honorary fellow of Jesus College Oxford, where she read modern languages. And we have Kelly McLeod Shingen. She will possibly tell us later about her name. Kelly always says she loves what she does. And she's been working in the diversity and the cultural field since 1989. But she started building bridges between differences since she was a little girl, breaking up fights on the playground or interpreting the beliefs of her multicultural group of friends in college to others or trying to explain one family member to another. That is really helpful. 
Kelly holds a master's in cross-cultural studies and a BA in communication. She is a certified in the intercultural development inventory, an empirical measurement tool of cultural competence developed by Professor Milton Bennett and Dr. Mitchell Hammer. Kelly is also a certified mediator. And her work is about inclusive leadership, global diversity and inclusion, storytelling, cultural competence, social justice, healing, racism, conflict resolution, mediation, and team building. And in the area of race and racism, Kelly trained with the Center of the Healing of Racism in Houston, Texas. Kelly designs and implements initiatives that foster racial inclusion through authentic dialogue and the power of storytelling. Additionally, Kelly has studied and researched the topic of racism in depth, and a major part of her research was dedicated to examining internalized racism and its impact on self-esteem. It is this research that led to the production of Anything But Black, Kelly's intimate narrative of her personal journey to self-love. And that is where I met Kelly, experiencing her production, which made me laugh, made me cry, made me think, and made me love Kelly. And I hand over to you both because so much more to tell, but that is Francine's job to elicit this precious information from Kelly. And um, I hand over to you both, thank you. Thank you, Susanna. And um, oh, it's wonderful to be able to talk to you today, Kelly, uh, again, and also hello to everybody else watching as well. Uh, Kelly, just before we, we get into some of those sort of huge subjects, which as uh, Susanna says, we, we can't really avoid today. Um, can you just give us the, the idea, I mean, there's such that lovely rich background of kind of the culture and the mediation and the conflict and all this. I mean, do you have a kind of guiding principle that works for any one of those areas? You know what, yes. Yes, yes. And I have to say that if I if I gave you a the story of my life, <laughs> you would discover that they were deeply rooted in the power of story. And so that's where it comes from. You know, I was a, a kid who grew up in a family full of storytellers and we had people coming in and out of my grandmother's house from all walks of life, different cultures backgrounds, sexual orientation, most of them were performers. And so, you know, the entertainment industry just happens to be rich with that level of diversity. And, and it got me started on wanting to know more about people because it was always a gathering of storytellers. And in those stories, I learned so much. I heard about the world. I got excited and curious to learn more. So I would probably say that that Foundation is really just my desire to want to be connected with others, and I recognize the the richness in that, and want other people to recognize the richness of being connected to others, and that story is the way to do so. Okay, so the important dynamic then in that is that somebody is able to tell their story, and that other people are able to hear it. I suppose. <laughs> sure, but you know what? You'd be surprised at how much we live in story anyway. You know, um, most people. I'll just tell you a perfect example. I was at the grocery store two days ago and this lovely Indian man was um, picking up a bag of crisps and, and I was looking for some crisps as well. And, and he goes, oh, don't get the Doritos, try these. And, and I, I said, oh, tell me about those. 
And he said, oh, well, you know, when I first got here from India years ago, there wasn't a lot of spicy things for me to enjoy. And I'm finding that there's more and more of that now. And before you knew it, I was standing there for almost a half an hour talking to this man. And I know his whole family story now. I can tell you the route that he came, you know, to make it to the United States. I know what his degrees are. I know what he did the very first day that he arrived here in the United States, how he did it, how he survived, who was the taxi drivers. <laughs> so you'd be surprised at how oftentimes when we meet people, we talk in stories anyway. And if you encounter someone who is a good listener, then so much more of who you are begins to unfold and you're willing to share. And before we left, he told me, he was like, you know what? You're a really good listener. And I said, I just like stories. But, but that's the key, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's, the list, it's the ability to listen. So if we have a situation and it's impossible not to think of, you know, everything that we see, as Susanna was saying, we see on television at the moment and the polarization of debates. And uh, the important thing, if you're going to enter any kind of process, is presumably that you have an equal amount of listening as you have of storytelling. Yes, indeed. And I think that one of that's a challenge, yeah. no doubt. I think that people are a little less prone to being good listeners as they are tellers. And some of the work that I've been doing as of late has been a focus on story listening versus storytelling because we we went through this boom. You know, I started talking about storytelling about 20 years ago, and now there's a huge boom about storytelling in the workplace, et cetera. Um, but I realized what was listening was was what was missing missing right, is the opportunity to take time to listen to others. And, and while people were eager to talk, um, oftentimes they would miss the opportunity to listen. And so I wanted to put more of a focus on that. Uh, and so you're right, you know, it is, that's the trick. And, um, and inviting people to do so and reminding people the value of that as well and teaching them how to do it, because I don't know that we've taught people how to be good listeners. No. Are there are there basic principles you think about good listening? I mean, apart from you know listening. <laughs> well, I think that it probably goes back to a simple one, which was what my grandfather used to say. You know, there's a reason why we have two ears and one mouth. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I think that it's sometimes just recognizing that if our desire is to connect. And, and that's where it comes from, right? It first has to be a desire to connect. And if we do have a desire to connect, then we need to give ourselves permission to, you know, put our hand over our mouth and just engage and listen, right? Just, just be there and be present and be mindful of inviting somebody in to our experience by letting us know a little bit more about themselves. But that, again, rolling back again, that desire to connect. So, you know, we've heard that, that you've worked at the, the Center for the Healing of Racism. Now, when you're going for something sort of as fundamental as that, I mean, how do you start to sense where there is the desire to connect or how do you engender the desire to connect? You know, the one of the primary products of the Center for the Healing of Racism is something that they call dialogue racism. And that's where it began. And I and I'm I'm embarrassed to say that when I started at the Center for the Healing of Racism, I have been doing this work for about 16 or 17 years and and felt it was for my graduate internship. 
So I had to select an internship and I thought, well, here's one that I'm interested in. So I'll, I'll go there and get my credits. Well, you know, my very first day of the dialogue, I thought, you know, I can do this. I'll facilitate this myself. And by the end of the first day, I realized just how much I didn't know and how how wrong I had been in the way that I was approaching the conversation of race. <clears throat> And what, what the dialogue process taught me was that if we are going to really engage about something that is so incredibly polarizing um, and deeply painful for so many people, that we had to create a safe container for people to tell their stories without crosstalk, without the ability to further question people, to be challenged. So, so psychological safety is critical to the process of story listening, particularly around race. And that was something that I learned from the center. Mm. So what gives that kind of psychological security, if you like, that's like that safety? Well, I think that it's creating um, community engagement or community rules, right? So there was a series of um, ground rules that we all had to literally raise our hands and say, yes, I will commit to, <clears throat> excuse me, being someone who is mindful of how much room I take up in a space to, to not try to stop someone else's tears from falling or to realize that we come from different perspectives and, you know, our intent doesn't necessarily match impact. We all have a different level of understanding with this topic, you know, just a number of different things that we had to agree to. And most Importantly, we had to agree to the process by which we would be in communication with one another. And I think that that's not unlike what a mediator does. You know, we lay the foundation of, <clears throat> excuse me, who will speak first, who will speak second, and then what we heard from what people said, right? So that's that's pretty much the same process. Yeah, so it's kind of allowing that sort of that formality just as a, you know, an, an early sort of start. But I suppose one of the things that you can come up against these days is that people look at history and they look back over the decades and they say, as far as race is concerned, you know, we still see appalling injustices. We still see that there is perhaps not as much progress. And then people become kind of defeated and entrenched in, in, in attitudes about that and, and maybe a bit scared of venturing things. Do you think that's a problem? Oh, it indeed is a problem. And more than anything, people are afraid to engage in a conversation because they don't want to be told that they are something that they don't believe themselves to be. So for for some, for many, they don't want to be told that they're a racist or that their ideology and the way that they have been raised is wrong. They don't want to be challenged. Um, and so they they want to state they want to stay in a place that my mentor refers to as an emotional commitment to ignorance but they are fully emotionally committed to not knowing about the experiences of others which means that they are less desi they desire less to get the story from people because it challenges their own um so i think that that's a big part of it so is that i mean are we touching then on the areas that people sometimes refer to as sort of white fragility or white defensiveness do you think Oh, indeed. And I think that, you know, on one hand, I'm grateful to these these amazing people who have brought up and done extensive research on these topics of white fragility or defensiveness or even privilege. And it's come from the perspective of white people recognizing and saying, hey, you know, here's something that I'm beginning to notice, even though, you know, marginalized people have been saying that for years. Um, <clears throat> apologies for something that's in my throat. 
But, um, but I think that the, that's exactly what we're tapping on. We're tapping into the fact that for, for, Ever, I was going to say for centuries, but forever, um, we've struggled with how to have this conversation because there's so much shame and guilt associated with the issue of race and racism because it's deeply rooted in our history of conquering, you know, colonizing and enslaving, right? And so when we have that, then we know that that's true. We know that what the people look like who did the conquer colonizing and enslaving. And we know what the people look like who were on the, the receiving end of that. And when we want to talk about the legacy of those things, it's easy for people to say, well, that was a long time ago, but there's so much that still is in our day-to-day relationships, our day-to-day systems, the way that we, we function um, in every society that is rooted in those beginning stages basically and so people are afraid to to go there they're afraid to to pull back the curtain and find the wizard right so um we have to we have to be willing to be courageous and brave to pull back the curtain because that's when we start putting the pieces back together and and we can make it back to kansas So okay, so here's, here's that's a wizard of Oz. <laughs> no, 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 the great wizard of Oz. Exactly, we'll click the red slippers together and all that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I mean, here's a, a kind of practical thing. If you have a very, if you have a polarized situation, if you have somebody who is locked in their in their defensiveness about, you know, how do they even approach what is this very difficult situation? I mean, how how do you kind of get them out of it. I mean, I know there's no reason why they should be coaxed out of it, but if you have polarized people in these sort of situations, mm-hmm. what's the way to start that dialogue? You know, I've found in my experience and in my work now over the years is that when there is, is someone um, in the space who is feeling so incredibly disconnected from the conversation of either inclusion or diversity, equity, and inclusion to find a moment to invite them in and ask them to tell us their story. What I've discovered is that in, as of, now I won't even say in the last several years, probably about 15 years ago was the first time that I was doing a session on race and a young white male at the university stood up and he said, I think that white men are being targeted now. And, and there were a number of people shaking their head yes in the space. And so I said, so let's talk about that. You know, in what way do you see that happening? And I think it was probably the first time that he felt like he had an opportunity to share that in that space. Now, um, giving him room to be able to say that could have opened him up for a lot of attacks and things like that. But because of my willingness to keep him safe, because his story is his truth, right? But I wanted to keep him safe so that he felt like he had the ability to share in that moment. From that, what I listened for very carefully were connections between when he felt othered and oppressed and how that could tie into the systems of oppression for marginalized people and say, well, if that happens to you and you don't like it, what do you want people to do for you? Okay, so if you want that to happen for you, can you not see how these people want that to happen for them? And then draw those commonalities. Because I think that that's one of the things that we have struggled with in the conversation of diversity is that we focus so much on what we call diverse 
hires or diverse populations. And when white men hear that, they hear a zero-sum conversation. They think that that excludes them. And so creating space for us to say, no, we're including you in this conversation as well, and you won't be only targeted as the, the, um, the oppressor or the perpetrator of all of this. So um, I found that to be the easiest way to invite them in, to tell their story, to give them room to say it in a space that they probably feel like they're going to be attacked. And now you work with all kinds of organizations. I mean, I know you've worked with police and you've worked with corporations and, and government, you know, local governments and whatever. D does your approach vary according to the institution? Absolutely. It approaches, it, it, I mean, it varies depending on the institution and depending on where they are in their understanding of the conversation. So if they, their readiness, I suppose, I will say. Um, there are some organizations, for example, I'm working with a police department now in Oklahoma. Um, it's the second department that I'm working with here in Oklahoma. And this department came to me and said, we've had no incidences of murder. We haven't been accused of police brutality. We haven't been um, protested against because of any of our policies or procedures. But we know that this is a conversation that's being had globally. We don't want to be behind the eight ball. We want to be in front of it. And so, so their approach is giving me permission to come in in a different place than I did with the first department that I went into that unfortunately did have a nationwide incident, um, a, a very visible incident of um, a death of a by a, a police officer, right? And so, so they were coming into this conversation with a lot of trepidation, a lot of pushback, a lot of fear, didn't want to be told that they were doing their job poorly or that they were racist. So I had to be, uh, take a few steps back and, and nurture an environment first that got their stories too and, and, and took time to hear what their trepidation was before I then said, okay, I hear that absolutely. And here are the connections. Here's the historical relevance. And now let's see if we can, we can create a different relationship with the community together. Right. So I always talked about what is that, what is that gap? What's bridging that gap? And so we spend more time trying to, to figure that out because they don't want to be disliked or hated or, you know, um, targeted by the community either. No, no, exactly. Um, and the whole sort of question of, um, I mean, we are talking at an extraordinary moment here where America appears to be so polarized on, on so many issues. I mean, there are various social issues, whether it's the economy or whether it's health, but, but actually it's not just America. You find this in political uh, and social debates all over the world at the moment. It seems to be that, that that kind of polarization is actually very much the mood of the moment. I mean, are you pessimistic about the outlook in, in terms of the ability to for people to tell their stories and have their stories be heard? Actually, I'm the opposite. I, I think that it's when moments like this happen that there is a population of people who are asking the question, why? And how did we get here, 
right? And I think that that's when it opens the door for us to be able to say, okay, well, so let me tell you my story. Here's how I got here. Um, I remember after 20, the 2016 election, um, one of our reporters went into the areas that had heavily voted for President Obama but then flipped and voted for Donald Trump. And so the question was, how did this happen when Obama cleaned house, you know, just four years before, and suddenly they're voting for somebody who seems to have such opposing, um, an opposing approach to the way that President Obama had. Um, and so they felt like they needed to get the story. And once they went in, you know, people said, you know, listen, we just feel like we need something different. We believed in in that approach of hope and that there, we were going to be um, kept in mind as policies shifted and changed and whatnot. But this guy has come in and said exactly what he's going to do for us. He's going to keep our factories open. He's going to do the things that we have been concerned about and afraid of. And so we want to give that a chance. Um, and so the the national narrative was that these were evil you know racists who couldn't stand obama but once they went in and got the story they realized that that wasn't it um and it just so happened that uh trump was able to to leverage that at the time yeah yeah so you're a mediator as well um, as everything else i mean to what extent could you see a crossover between the skills of of mediation and the, the kind of healing other healing functions that that you know you you practice elsewhere right so i i honestly think that the skills are the same um that exist for a facilitator and a healer, right? I believe that a facilitator holds the space and knows that the answers are in the room and we just massage it to bring it to that place. That's what I feel about a, a facilitator. I think that the same is true for a mediator. A mediator stands in the space and says, I think that the answer is in the room. I'm going to be here to listen as a neutral um, ear, but I'm going to pop in every once in a while to say, okay, here's what I think is going on. Can you see this perspective? What, 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 um, what commonalities do we have here and how can we work toward a resolution together, right? Inviting a compromise. And I think that that's basically what I do when we talk about issues of race and racism, right? Um, it, it's, I come in and even though I, it is almost impossible for me to not bring my identity with me into a conversation of race and racism. My experiences, the way that I have been marginalized and um, victimized, frankly, around issues of race. But in those moments, I have to be responsible for the people in the room. It is not about me at that time, right? In the same way that it's not about the mediator. It's about the people in the room. What skills and tools can I provide them with in order to give them the opportunity to see each other in a way where we can leave the room on the other side with everyone's dignity intact? Mm. And that seems a very good point at which to um, ask Susanna uh, on, from CEDAR to, to rejoin us now. And um, I mean, how, how do you feel about that, Susanna? Would you? Yeah, no, thank you. Um, I was, I think the word dignity was mentioned a couple of times. And I think that was for me one of the key connectors today. I think, especially as a mediator, that's what it's about, actually, to give people dignity mm -hmm. and accepting their truth as painful as might be for me to hear that. And I think that is what, um, as a mediator, when we talk amongst ourselves and when we have um, like work meetings, 
where we often say that is the most difficult. If there is someone who is so fundamentally different from what my values are, how can I still maintain my impartiality and be the conduit I have to be in that moment because I'm there for a reason and what is the role I have to fulfill? Mm-hmm. Um, how would you, um, because we talked also about healing and, and I personally see mediation as part of a healing process, I would never tell the parties beforehand, by the way, this is a healing process. <laughs> it, um, sometimes I start my opening in a mediation is, you might not reach a settlement today, mm-hmm. but the minimum you will take away today is some learning about yourself, about the conflict, and you can then choose what you want to do with this. So this is already much more than if not, if you wouldn't have come. So when we talk about black and white healing, mm-hmm. where would you see the difference of journeys and and yeah, methods and where to start and objectives? Sure. Um, well, you know, I have to reach back to my time at the Center for the Healing of Racism, and I feel strongly that um, there's no way to move forward without engaging in dialogue. And so I think that it's important for us to understand the experiences of other people. And the dialogue process at the Center for the Healing of Racism isn't just people sitting in a room and only talking to one another. It's also a multimedia approach. It's videos that are brought in. There are, you know, audio recordings. There are also articles that we spend time with. It's a two, it's an, it's a 18 hour process. So it's not a one day, two, two hour session, right? When people do this, they are committed and they commit to the full time. And so um, so you begin to develop these relationships with one another. And the again, the impact of hearing each other's stories is critical. I will say that what, what white people need to do is to um, come into the space in a way that um, is, is not operating from deep generations of feelings of guilt, right? I think that that is not helpful. It's not useful. It's also not helpful or useful to come in feeling like you have to fix it today um, and or that you don't want to be called a racist. I think that if we operate from a place of I just want to learn instead of the place of it was a long time ago, that's progress. Right. I think that the flip of it um, for people of color is um, oftentimes we're dealing with a lot of a lot of pain and shame that we've somehow um, deeply put into the the pits of our our bellies and don't even realize that it's there until something comes up is the thing that I discovered when I when I unpacked my own story about um, blackness and the messages that I received about blackness being um, undesirable, frankly, from people who look like me and people who didn't look like me. And so, uh, and and where that came from, particularly in the United States context, right? and so, so unpacking that shame, unpacking um, the processes that we have to go through in order to feel comfortable in our own skin and the fullness of our lips and the fullness of our bosom, I mean, our bottoms or in the kinkiness of our hair um, because it's been on attack from people who look like us and people who didn't. Um, and so I think that it's, again, taking the time to be willing to unpack that, to explore that, to engage in our guilt 
and in our shame. I don't know if that answers your question, Suzanne, but I, I think that it certainly is a, a point of departure for sure. And what I'm hearing is there is definitely, it's not a quick fix. It's a journey. The oh, commitment, it starts, what I'm hearing as well, it starts with yourself, self-acceptance as a white and as a person of color. Mm-hmm. And then seeing, okay, what, what does that do with me? And you said something uh, previously to um, when you said this, this white man said there are after us now, or we are the target. Mm-hmm. To first accept that is his truth and not just shutting him down, but also um, make him go on the journey or invite him to go on the journey to feel oppressed and how it feels like mm-hmm. and othered. Mm-hmm. And then helping at least to get um, something like empathy to how someone else who has that experienced that for the entire life might want to or feels what needs to be done. I think to create that connection is often only possible if you feel that yourself. You can't artificially produce that, I guess, uh, create. Absolutely. And I'll say that some of the work that I was doing with the police department was the exact same thing. You know, um, they wanted to be seen as individuals. They didn't want to be associated with the bad cops, that there was many more good cops than there were bad cops. And and so and when I would be in my sessions, I would say that's fascinating because many people in the communities that you serve um, will say, can you see me as an individual? Why am I always targeted, right? There are good and bad people in this community, but yet you treat everyone in that community um, as if they are the bad people in that community. And so if you don't want them, people to see you as that, as a, a police officer, can you offer that grace to the communities that you serve? Mm-hmm. So, um, and that's one of the first times that they even realize it. They don't even realize it up to that point. But when you can draw their attention to, here's another way that that's the same, right? So I spend a lot of time talking about what's same and what's different. Um, But when we have such polarity, it's critical that you draw the conclusions of the ways that we're similar in order to bring that line closer together, right? One of my favorite quotes from uh, an interculturalist, Patty Dye, is the shortest distance between two strangers is a story. And so if you want to pull people together, then we have to spend time talking about those those commonalities, you know, and give them an opportunity to share. And I'm sure you have experiences where you possibly mediated or had a group of, of radically different people who didn't want to engage at all and then came together. Mm-hmm. And is that mainly through storytelling or is there something else you do to help them get closer? Um, I think honestly, it's always going to be story. Now, do I call it storytelling every time? No, <laughs> because I think that there are some um Uh, preconceived notions of when we say storytelling, right? They think, oh, that's childish or that's what kids do. They sit and, you know, read a book and then they get the story. Uh, So to talk about people's experiences as story is something that um, has its historical roots and being squashed because of colonization, right? Most of our traditional cultures 
have shared um, story from generation to generation as a way to teach values, what's important, how to stay safe, um, how to respect one another, um, what was good to eat, what was not good to eat, what was our, our shared faith or religion. Um, and that was done through story. It was an oral tradition. Um, and then as a result of colonization, we kind of saw that oral tradition as, as archaic or um, primitive because it wasn't written. We placed value on, on what is written and not on the oral tradition. So we've moved away from story, but our brains are hardwired for storytelling, which is why film, television, radio, and all of these things have such a deep impact. Theater has such a deep impact on people's you know, emotional connection. I was researched that I saw recently, sorry to get into this, but um, as a theater person as well, I read this research about how when people go and see a theatrical production, that the, that the, um, the heartbeats are aligned the, in a theater, that people, all of the people in the experience, they, they, they are connected through that performance. And so when that type of thing happens in the storytelling experience, you know that we can be transformed, right? Part of story listening is the ability to be transformed. And, and, it, and that transformation isn't just trance in the way that we spell it with an S, but we actually fall into a trance, which is why our heartbeats align, right? So um, it's fascinating for another day, but, but all of that is critical to this process and we can gauge one another, you know, through that. And so it's a, it's a beautiful connection. I think that answers already one of the audience's questions uh, was how can we expand on someone else's story apart, of course, by actively listening. I think that's what you basically just answered through the, the engagement and trans transformation. There was one other question. Um, when, um, because when you talked about the healing process, when does a person know they are healed and can move on? Hmm. Uh, well, I, honestly, I think about this, this level of healing that has to come in the form that um, we're talking about around race is frankly a lifelong journey. I have to say that while my story that I told was about my journey around internalized racism, um, because the, the process of healing racism is to unpack the myriad of definitions that exist around race and racism. Because what we don't know, when we talk about race, we only think of the KKK, the card carrying members, you know, the neo-Nazis, people who are out there, you know, protesting with their tiki torches, et cetera. But racism is, is is um is vast and it's deeply embedded in in many of our global systems and so we can talk about interpersonal racism which is what most people stop with but we have to examine systemic racism cultural racism environmental racism um in as i talked about internalized racism how does it impact people of color and how do we start we see ourselves so i think that while i have gone full circle to wanting to be anything but black as a young girl to you couldn't pay me to be anything but black now love my blackness um that i think I'm still healing behind this because there's such deep conditioning around race globally. So in any given day, I can be um, traumatized or re-traumatized or triggered by this and it opens a wound again. So I think it's a lifelong process, but we can get to a place where 
when, for example, when we're dealing with the loss of a loved one, we can finally get to a place where it's not as raw, even though we still feel the loss, right? It may not be as raw. It doesn't make us cry on a dime, but we may have an opportunity to smile and think before we feel that twinge of sadness, right? So it comes in time, but it's it's a lifelong process. Yes, yeah, so it's also actually um, good to, whilst we always want to stop sort of a healing uh, or the, the pain, I think the healing might also become something like a joyful experience because you learn to love and accept you more, you possibly open yourself up and get many more, you're more open to receive different experiences which enriches your life. So you might not want even to stop the healing process. But Sure, and, and my healing, what I, what I know to be absolutely true about story in the same way as when I discovered, honestly, when we were doing, when I was doing anything but black more frequently, I always thought that that story was only going to connect and resonate with young black girls who were born on the South side of Chicago, right? Um, I really thought that that was going to be my targeted audience were other little girls just like me. And what I found was that no matter where I did this story in the world, that there was always someone who came up to me after my presentation and said, you just told my story. Um, it happened in Chile, it happened in Asia, it happened in Canada, it happened in all over Europe. And there was always someone who came up to me from another ethnicity, race or culture who said, that's my story too. So there's something in this notion of being other that connects people, right? So it goes back again to me saying, here's where we can connect. On the, on the ways that we have experienced similar things. We might be completely different on polar ends, but there is a connection in that. So, um, yeah. Well, that's um, one question, which also links to that uh, white young um, man in, your, in that audience you had is that often people view the rise of gender and racial equality as a threat to their way of life. Whereas the actual threat to them, their family and community is an increasingly globalized economy, traditional job losses, distant political structures and decision making. So how can we start to help people realize that the threat isn't necessarily diversity and inclusion, but the need to address these other issues? Um, so I would say that the, the first thing is to get out in front and make a lot of noise about that. Because what happens is it, 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 it's all about who drives the narrative. Right. Who drives that narrative? And if the government drives a narrative about um, those are the people who are preventing you from your jobs, those are the people who are preventing you access to opportunity. Those are the people who are bringing in in crime, etc. Then that drives a national narrative. But what we have to do is to get out in front of that narrative or we have to make sure that we are pushing against it in the same level of noise. What we know to be true is that the noisemakers are the ones that get the greatest amount of attention. So if we are sitting back and saying, but that's not true and, and relying on um, uh, logic, that's not going to happen. Right. So we can't just say, well, soon somebody they'll wake up soon. Somebody will say, right. The people who were waiting for are us. So we have to get out there and draw uh, the same level of noise and whether that is by organizing, protesting, creating our own, you know, media outlets that com compete with the, the, the dominant narrative um, in order to challenge that because we have to. And I think that that's going to be the only way forward. Mm -hmm. So it is 
actually we, we can't just sit back and wait that someone will save us or will um, we have also first to understand that this is possibly um, the issue or trigger we are feeling and mm -hmm. then seeing what we can do about that because I think that is for when I listen to a lot of interviews recently in the US of people how they feel it um, it felt like that they can't really pin down what it is that they feel so angry or sad or whatever is about mm -hmm. so I think is is it also giving the tools how to analyze yourself or to reflect or actually to voice things I don't know even if that is something people have necessarily learned Absolutely. <laughs> so I think that that's the first thing, right? Yes. Giving people, you know, we have a history of, you know, um, don't, don't complain too much or, you know, we, we seek harmony, right? Don't just relax. Don't get so loud. Um, and so when people get loud and protest, then there's this, this disruption in, um, harmony that tends to upset people enough that they then stop listening yeah. right or it's easier for them to walk away or say well they're just they're you know just a little bit too loud if they had just done it this way right but what we know in the u.s context is even when there was silent protest like kneeling on the football field um that was met with outrage so the truth of the matter is anytime that there is a a um push back to the system, there will always be those who will say that you didn't do it right and utilize the first responders in order to squash the dissension. So the same thing happened, you know, and this happened in the UK as well, but when women were fighting for the right to vote, you know, they were arrested um, in the protests and the marches, et cetera. They were arrested, thrown in jail. Um, you know, they tried to use the, the media and they were squashed on, on, um, at every turn because it was, a, it was a pushback to the status quo. The status quo doesn't want that. So what I'm um, that links actually also to one other question which came up a couple of times. So, um, do you have any of limits in conversations, or would you, let's say, would you say I have to stop a conversation, or yeah, would would you let everything even boil over possibly to an escalated conflict? Uh, so I want to say yes, and that depends. Yes. I think that I allow things to bubble over and, and blow because sometimes we need that. Um, but I will do everything in my power as a facilitator to keep the space safe. Um, and I will constantly remind the participants to be mindful of what's happening in their bodies, right? Because this happens not just in our heads, right? It happens in our bodies. So when somebody says something that really upsets us, we can feel the heat coming from the center, the, the core of our beings and coming up and you can see the red just going up the side of our faces, right? You, so it's happening in our bodies. We can feel it. Our hands get clammy. Um, so I'm always asking people, you know, be mindful of what you're thinking and feeling. I, I engage, I invite them to sit with their hands up like this on their, on their thighs, because that's a receiving position instead of crossing and, and, you know, closing themselves off. So if they're feeling challenged, then I invite them 
you know, and I say that if you're feeling challenged, if you're feeling um, frustrated, angry, I'm going to invite for you to sit with your hands, palms up so that we can receive this because this process is also receiving the things that are, you know, painful for us to hear. Right. Um, so, you know, and oftentimes if, if I know that it's going to get really, really deep, then I invite a, a psychologist or a psychiatrist into the room with me because I'm not trained in that. Um, I am trained in, in keeping this conversation safe. So and then after it's all over, then I give people a ton of resources on additional things that they can do to help them, um, including books, resources, online sources, etc. So um, but so, yes, I, I absolutely allow it. I allow the conversation to go where I feel like it needs to go, but I always try to, to, to hold it. And when you people say, you know, I'm holding space for this, I'm, I, I, it is critical for me to hold it, which is why I'm exhausted after it's over. I can lay out in the middle of the floor. After yeah, that would be my next question. How do you protect yourself? And can you give us some ideas of ground rules you use beforehand? Sure. So, um, you know, some of the the ground rules are things that we all use if you're a facilitator or a trainer and anything else, right? Um, it is make I statements, speak only from your perspective, right? Don't make generalizations. Um, be mindful of the language we use. So, so be sure not to use toxic or judgmental language, right? That's stupid. Um, you know, uh, things like, well, that's ridiculous or, or challenging people and judging people's experiences, right? So, um, so when that happens, if somebody says something in the room that I know is in violation of one of our, our rules of engagement, then I'll draw their attention to that. You know, before we started today, we all agreed that we were going to be in relationship with one another with respect to these rules of engagement. And here is a time when you have challenged that. So I'm going to invite you to restate what you wanted to say in a way that removes the toxic language, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so because people really want to be in the conversation and don't want to be perceived as a bad guy, they will do that. They will be like, you're right, you know, I'm sorry, let me let me fix that. I just got really, really upset. And sometimes you get upset, you just use, you know, whatever comes up, comes out. Um, and I would say, you know, I acknowledge the emotion, but I'm going to invite you to change the words, right? Um, so, so, so those are just some of the ones that I'll use and I can share, you know, the extent of what they are later, but they, but it really is, is not just about the ground rules. It's, it, it's deeply embedded in the strength of the facilitator and their ability to manage the space. Not everybody can handle a space that is going to the depths of the pain that comes out as a result of race and racism or the polarization and the duality of experiences. Um, but, but when you do, then it, there's something so incredibly rich on the other side of it incredibly rich on the other side of it. And there are plenty of organizations around the world that are doing some amazing work. And I can provide that after the call as well. Now that would be fascinating also for, the, there are many facilitators on, on the call today as well, for us to learn more about how to hold the space and how, how to develop. I have one, possibly I make this the last question and then also- oh, Well, sorry, I, let me just interject oh. really quickly. And, yeah. and I say that, as facilitators, it's tricky, especially because we bring ourselves into the room too. And so we we have to not just hold space for everybody else, but we also have to manage our own emotion as it comes up because people will say things that may 
upset us, right? But again, it's not about us. <laughs> and, and we can't use that facilitation position as a bully pulpit either in order to bully people back into a state of submission that we agree with. Because if we're doing that, then we're creating and causing more pain and more division and not giving people access to tell their story. So, um, so it's critical that facilitators are, um, are that, that they keep their own experiences in check, and then they have an opportunity to um, to to purge that and and release that later. Because I think the other question you asked me, Susanna, was um, was about um, what do I do? How do I keep my own sanity in moments like that? And I have to say that after it's all over, uh, I'm a, I'm a meditator. And I love water. So um, if, if I am near water, I, am, I go out and I sit and I just stare at it for a long time. If I'm not, I have a sound machine that allows me to hear the ocean and I just close my eyes and, and, and sit and imagine. Or I go to my backyard because I happen to have the pool in the backyard. And if the weather's nice, I'll sit by the pool and sometimes I will have a cocktail. <laughs> I like that, especially for us, it's Friday evening, so we might. <laughs> I think yeah. that is um, what you said is it's almost um, how the conversation started. So it's we are the me as a mediator. It's not not about us. It's about what's in the room to facilitate that and actually see what's coming mm -hmm. and how we can equip ourselves to be able to hold that, but also to admit I might not be there yet or I might even development in some areas to be actually honest as well to ourselves um, to it's, it's about timing often because sometimes we can do it. And sometimes we are, we are not. Um, I don't even know. There is one question from, from Nureddin. I'm not, it, it's so big. I ask okay. it and, and let's see if we can, um, we might have to have another show on that. So <laughs> if someone asks you when and where racism started, what would you say? So <laughs> it's like, like opening up. Um. Right. So, um, man, that's a huge question. It definitely is that. I think that for me, I've always felt as if racism began the moment that it was created because I don't, what is true is that um, racism is real, although race is not, right? Race is a social construct. There is no biological reality to these notions that we have come up with around race. That is a fact. Um, there's been a lot of medical and um, scientific research in order to unpack that. And what they found out is that if you had a group of people in a room, all different races, and you do a DNA test, you will find that I have greater DNA in common with someone who is from Sri Lanka than I have with another Black person in the United States. So, so what they're discovering is that this notion of, of race is just false, but racism is real. So I want to say that race, this racism was created in order to to establish a power um, 
a power community, a power culture, power brokers, where there were winners and there were losers. And that happened um, with this, with the, with the cryogenics, the fake science of the size of people's heads and their cranium and how much brain the sizes of their heads could hold. Um, and all of this came out, you know, uh, at a time when we wanted to justify the crimes that were committed about other committed against other human beings who were conquered, colonized and enslaved. Right. So um, that's, that's probably the briefest answer that I could provide right now in terms of coming to the specific dates and individuals, then you'll have to give me some time to, to get back to that. But I'll, I think what you said is makes it racism is real and race is not. I think that is something that is a key takeaway and that actually helps in, in, in lots of the discussions we are having and also for the dialogue. So we can deal with something that is real racism. And we just talked today a lot about tools and, and what we as facilitators can do about it. And that means we can accept that race is not real, actually liberate, liberates us as well to actually embrace us as the human individuals as we are with all our flaws and emotions and and, and feelings and emotions. And I think that's, that's what it's all about in the end. It's simple, but not trivial at all. Mm -hmm. And then we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, what value is there in believing that race is real, right? The only value in it is in order to continue to promote the, the, the status quo. If we realize that we were more connected than we were disconnected in terms of race, then there would be an incredibly different shift in the way that people see one another. Um, and so, so I think that the only people that it benefits are those who benefit from maintaining a racist system. Um, and so, so again, I think that this goes back to when we know better, we should do better and we got to make noise about it. We can't just say, oh, no, I know that there's no such thing as race <laughs> and then pretend like it's going to go away because we now know that. No, we got to make some noise behind it and we need to get some some uh, power brokers to help us make that noise, make some documentaries, make some videos, create some workshops, create some conferences, um, you know, uh, write some blogs. There needs to be a lot of of energy behind it to to protest it. So um, and realize that there will be those who push back, right? In the same way that this is happening right now, there are people who are saying critical race theory isn't real, pushing back against that. Um, white privilege isn't real, pushing back against that. Um, so as soon as it got any momentum, that's when people started saying, you know, oh, it's not, it's not real. So let's push back against that because they want to maintain the status quo. Fantastic. I think that that um, is actually a commitment and also uh, like a call to action for all of us listening now and then everyone who will listen to this is let's protest. Let's find our channel to make the noise. I think that should be the commitment for for today, but definitely I will take away. Francine, what um, to give you the closing mm. word. Um, is there something you took away or want to, to raise? Say? No, I mean, Fasit and Kelly, thank you again for all that. I mean, I suppose the one thing I would like to think about, if in an ideal world, either you, Kelly, or 
somebody with your skills and abilities and understanding would go into an organization and facilitate those conversations. Sad fact is that mostly a lot of the institutions that need it are also busy saying to each other, well, we're not, we're not racists. And if we start to talk about the subject, then it all gets really awkward and difficult. And there's a potential, you know, what could, what would be a step that, you know, a board or a chief executive or somebody could do that might start to open up that kind of discussion, do you think? So first, let me apologize for the lawn guy <laughs> in the background. If you hear some noise, that's our lawn guy, apologies. Um, but I will say that I think one of the first things that I invite a lot of the executives to do is to first um, be willing to acknowledge that there is a disconnect in our conversations around race, right? And so can we just acknowledge the fact that there are people who believe that racism is real and impacts them deeply with access to opportunity and are willing to outline those ways. So are we willing to listen to that? So if they, if they, are, if they start from a place where they say, absolutely, we need to unpack what our, our, our people are thinking and saying. And, and if it means that a consultant or somebody from the outside like myself would need to come in and say, here's how it's impacting your bottom line. If we have to do that, then do that. I mean, I, I hate the business case and yet it's critical because if I talk to my husband about this and his company, he's like, if you don't bring me the business case, I can't listen, right? And so I know that that's true for many companies, particularly in the US as capitalism is alive and well. Um, so what is the business case? How can they make more money as a result of engaging in this conversation? I have to first get them to that place. Um, and then when we have that conversation and the leadership can understand the impact, then I think that we can say, all right, well, let's examine our organizational story, not the, not the global story, not the national story, not our regional story. What is our organizational story about how we give people access to opportunity, right? And then from that, I say, all right, so that's what we say. Now let's go do a process of listening, right? Throughout the organization to find out what are people really experiencing and allow them to tell you the stories from the margins. And once we start picking apart, not picking apart, sorry. Once we start unpeeling or peeling back the onion of what those marginalized stories are, then we can find out what are tangible actionable items that we can attack or address in order to to um, to begin to create the organization that we want to be right um so that's where it starts but they have to be willing to first acknowledge that is the first step for everybody first acknowledge that there is a problem um but if we spend too much time thinking, no, we're good, you know, well, that's their problem, or it's just a couple of, you know, complainers, uh, then there's there's no way that you can get any work done. No. Thank you, Kimmy. Yeah. Thank you. So I think it um, again, it's it's to be continued because there is so much more. But thanks for sharing that and also going to some some places which um, which are deep and which might be painful and also showing us ways how we can start the healing process and acknowledging perhaps that we are already on that journey, but actually definitely continuing that. 
So um, I thank both of you for for this for this conversation. I thank for um, the the audience for the the brilliant questions. And I would just say, let's protest, let's make the noise, and let's get the conversation not only started, but let's continue that. So thank you very much. Until the next time. Thank you. Thank you, thank you Susanna. Thank you, Kelly. Yeah, thank you, Francine. Thank you, Susanna. Thank you, everyone, for being here and for, for allowing us to have this conversation today.